0: Sedano, you know there's no better way to start your Saturday than with my guy, Dr. Clapper, and the Weekend Warrior Show, seven to nine a.m. Saturday mornings.
1: What's going on, LA? This is Kobe Bryant.
0: Sometimes you can call me Smokey. Sometimes you can call me Rocky.
1: Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper.
0: Today I want to be Tito, Dr. Tito Clapper.
1: Every Saturday morning from seven to nine a.m. on ESPN, seven ten, home of your Los Angeles Lakers.
0: Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. Thank you, Elton John. But I don't want to talk to Elton John. I want to talk to this man right now, one of the greatest influences in my life, and I cannot believe he's the guest, but I'm so over the moon, the great Mark Spitz. Mark, thank you so much for being with us this morning.
2: My pleasure.
0: Oh, God. Can I play you a soundbite of Duke Kahanamoku's sister? And I just want, Michelangelo's dead 500 years. I can't talk to him, but I can talk to you. I want you to tell me what you think when you hear Bernice, the sister of Duke Kahanamoku, talking about how Duke Kahanamoku, also an Olympic champion, learned how to swim.
2: Must have
1: been wonderful being raised on a, an island paradise, Duke. Uh, what was Duke's childhood
0: like, Bernice?
2: Well. Brother Duke's childhood days were spent in the water Uh and on the beach. But my father taught him how the old-fashioned method to swim when he was only four years old.
1: What was your dad's uh, method of teaching you, Duke? Well, uh, that's a long story. Yeah. (laughs) As I say... But he did it. (laughs) He threw you uh, kind of over the outrigger canoe between... Over the canoe between the two outriggers. Yeah, I was splashing all over the place. Save yourself for drowning.
0: Are you kidding me? What does that sound like to you, Mark Spitz?
2: I don't know. It sounds like a program that was called "This Is Your Life." <laughs> <laughs> I've seen that program. <laughs> yeah, those were pretty amazing programs in yes. black and white. Yes, I never, me- I never met Duke Kahanamoku, um, but I did meet Johnny Weissmuller. You did. In fact, well- he was actually in the stands, sitting about a row and a, I guess a row or two in front of my parents oh who my were seated God. with Kirk Douglas ah! watching, watching me swim in Munich. Oh my As a matter of fact, in my sixth race, which was the hundred meter freestyle, um, as I was walking out, paraded out with the other seven athletes cause there were eight lanes. Mm-hmm. I heard this voice, go Mark, go Mark. <laughs> this is Johnny. And I looked over and I was going, Oh my gosh.
0: It's Tarzan. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I have a soundbite. Listen to this one. This is Johnny Weissmuller with Duke Ahanamoku on that very show. <laughs> Listen to this.
2: Duke actually helped you to beat him, didn't he, Johnny? Yes, he did. You know, we trained together in the Olympic Games, yeah. and this big lug, he just gave me all the confidence in the world.
1: Uh, <laughs> this is a thrill to see you it's two it's together, real. the guy who finally broke his record. Even though he had a feeling that you were going to beat him, he helped
2: you? Well, sure. He used to watch me train and take care of me. He made me, made me go back and get in that pool and work up and down. He was just like a big brother to the boys. He gave it the work out. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, funny thing, he never, he never worried much about himself. All he wanted to do was be sure that the United States got that one, two, three in the That's Olympic right. games.
0: That's Johnny Weissmuller. Is that amazing? Oh. <laughs> I can't, I'm, I can't believe right now I'm listening to Johnny Weissmiller, Duke Hanamoko, and I'm talking to Mark Spitz. Okay, I, like tomorrow I put me in a coffin, you can bury me. It's just been an unbelievable life. What's most fascinating of the many things, and again, I can't thank you enough for you never even knowing me. I still haven't shaken your hand. I've just spoken to you. But as a Jewish guy growing up in New York about a million miles away from you, how much you influenced me and so many people, not about swimming, even though I swam on my high school team wearing your Speedo-designed, you know, trunks, but the fact that you did so much meant I. why can't I do so much also? And it's just such a beautiful story. And here's Duke Hanamoku doing the ultimate aloha spirit with Johnny Weissmuller. Just doing good for goodness sake, inspiring people. Mark Spitz, that's what you've done to so many of us. Uh, And so on behalf of all of us, thank you for everything that you did. I mean, maybe you don't hear it enough. You hear it too much. I'm just telling you thank you. But I'd like to ask you a few questions if you don't mind. Sure. You talk about going to Indiana instead of going to Stanford to follow this coach, councilman teach us what and you say you became a better swimmer because he was your coach instead of the stanford coach where you initially wanted to go like god had a mysterious path for you that led you to indiana what exactly does a great swimming coach teach a swimmer like you that made you who was already great even better
2: well, I think um, that's a very interesting question, and it has quite a lengthy answer. But the short take your story, time. Uh, uh, no, the short the short answer is, is that he was a great motivator, and he met he made everybody that he came in contact with feel that they were the most special person on the team. It didn't matter whether or not you came to the university as a world record holder, or he was still developing your skills. Although at the level of Getting uh, collegiate swimming, I mean, you had to be pretty good because everybody was there under scholarship, so you just couldn't actually, you know, work out your craft for four years while you were there. There were really no to speak of walk-ons. So, um, you know, he he was very interested in us as, uh, as athletes, but he also was very interested in us as human beings hmm. and and perfecting our skills uh, intellectually, hmm. so that we were there academically to also complete four years of college, and hopefully have a degree. Mm. As a matter of fact, I was just on a, uh, on a blog for about an hour a day for eight straight days while we just got through with our Olympic swim trials mm. that were in uh, Omaha, Nebraska. Mm-hmm. And there was this big conversation, and it's been pretty pretty up there in the front pages about mental health. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, uh, we've seen it in tennis. We've seen it in a lot of different sports where some of these athletes have, have, have had these breakdowns. Are these, these issues that they 've had a, I guess a, a problem with trying to sort out where they 're going and what they 're doing? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of it has to do with public adulation. but part of the problem is is that a lot of athletes who go through college, and I only speak uh, about college sports um, there 's so much emphasis on being great and being recruited into a, becoming a professional. Mm-hmm. And that's perfectly fine. In some sports, you may have some longevity, like golf. You can play into your 40s or 50s, but certainly swimming or track and field, that's not going to happen, and including mm-hmm. basketball or even football for that matter. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, you know, is there some sort of a skill set that you've learned in college that you could fall back on? Mm-hmm. And the answer is probably not. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody thinks that far in advance, or anybody that's within their team or in their environment has encouraged them to to develop those skills. Hmm. They're only interested in their self-serving ways to make sure that that athlete stays in that sport and continues to be in their winning ways and make money because that's perhaps maybe their meal ticket. And it's as selfish as that may seem, it seems to boil down to something like that. Hmm. So a lot of these, uh, you know, young men and women uh, have, have failed to prepare for something in the future. Hmm. And I think that's part of the reason that they have a difficult time trying to muster up, you know, uh, feeling comfortable and confident and, and having these uh, these lapses of feeling sorry for themselves. Mm. I mean, we've seen this with some of the top swimmers in the world that have a tremendous amount of money, mm. um, and yet they find themselves wallowing mm. uh, and, and not feeling confident about what's happening in their life. Mm. And part of that is because they fail to prepare for something that is more meaningful or as meaningful, perhaps, Hmm. uh, and and having an education and a skill set so that they can feel confident and, and and I guess, uh, and and trying to uh, be competitive and finding a job other than what it was when they were an athlete.
0: Hmm. I'm talking to the great Mark Spitz. I got to thank David Rosen a million times for making this all happen. You're the father of two sons, um, so you can speak as a parent as well, When we talk about Tiger Woods and his dad teaching him all about golf, but what made him the champion that he was, and I'm not looking into his entire life, just as his golf life, but people don't give enough credit to his mom giving him the mental toughness. So I want to know, what is it that your mom and dad said to you that gave you the mental toughness? You obviously had the physical capabilities, but... Was there anything in particular that your dad or your mom said to you that that gave you that mental toughness?
2: Um, you know, first of all, they, they weren't, and we weren't very wealthy as a family, So, but he did provide, you know, for a great home. Mm-hmm. And my mom drove me to practice all the time because I couldn't drive when I was 10, 11, 12, when mm-hmm. I first started off as an age group swimmer. I think that... Um, uh, he certainly pointed out some facts that may have not been as apparent to when you're nine or 10 years old that you know he used to ask me and in those days we only had six lane pools he said how many people are in the pool mark and i'd say well there's six dad and he'd go well how many people win i go well i think there's just one winner he says yep and you can win from any lane just get to the finals Wow. Things like that, you know, wow. um, and uh, just a little bit of a perspective. And I find them and uh, found them to be humorous, to be honest with you. My mom was my greatest advocate. Wow. I think she fended off my, my father being too, uh, I mean, maybe too much pressure on me. I think part of that pressure actually came from the fact that I think as I started to become more successful as an athlete, I think I took it upon myself to expect more from myself, but I think that's a natural instinct that if, you know, misery loves company, and if the company is that I'm always on the award stand and getting first place, I don't want to relinquish that, mm-hmm. <laughs> so therefore, there's a lot of hard work to get there all the time, and I remember the first world record that I ever broke. My coach, um, his name was George Haynes, his, he was also the coach of the guy I broke the world record from, mm-hmm. which his name was Don Scholander, the 400-meter freestyle. And I remember him whispering in my ear, and he said, you know, the world will know what you did on Monday morning. You just went from the hunter to the hunted. Let's see what you can do. And there's a whole different transition when that happens because, you know, we weren't born with a world record certificate. And we have to basically train and, and have a vision. And I think that my parents gave me that vision. Um, as it developed in front of all of us as a family. I certainly wasn't thinking about going to the Olympic Games when I was 14 years old. Hmm. But when I was 15 years old, I was swimming on a team with a guy who had just come back from the Tokyo Olympic Games in 1964, had won four gold medals in swimming, and his name was Don Scholander And I was then swimming right next to him in the lane Hmm. uh, at practice. And so my vision of where the world was and where I thought I wanted to be was in the swimming pool every day. Hmm. And that, that, that my parents provided for me with that.
0: That's just, you know, they talk about Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant. The rest of us, not you, the rest of us think about motivation in winning. But in the case of Kobe and Michael Jordan, they say, it's that they actually hated to lose more than they loved to win. And it almost sounds like that's what motivated you as well. You didn't want to relinquish it. You were not, the losing just tasted so bad uh, in a sport where there isn't a team. It's really just you
2: in the pool. <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned that because I've been asked, obviously, over the last 48 years since I won, or now I guess it's 49 years since 1972, my seven gold medals in Munich, Germany, mm-hmm. I've always said it wasn't so much about the winning, I just despised losing <laughs> I, I made it a, I made it a point to think about internally for myself that I was more interested in what those people that I were competing against came to the swimming pool of who was going to decide who was going to become first to finish second place, and I decided that when I left my hotel room to go to either the finals or I left to go to practice or whatever it was, I I made a determination that I wanted to come back as a winner. Somebody had to come back as a winner, and I just said, I've got to put myself in that position. So we didn't even have a thing in those days called visualization. But I was visualizing that it it had to be me and nobody else. And I made it a point that at competition, uh, it's too late to worry about did you train hard enough is basically have to screw your head on and say, this is about a 90% battle in my mind. My body will follow if my mind can basically take me in that direction. And there are so many people that had they felt the same way that I felt, I probably wouldn't have been on the winner's stand as often. And I think it's the same thing with with Tiger Woods um, and and people that are very consistent at what they're doing. And I I, I sort of analyzed uh, quantitatively that, I really wasn't that much better than anybody, maybe 3 or 4%. And I think that if you look at Tiger Woods or um, Michael Jordan, they're 2 or 3% better. But we all made the point to always be that 2 or 3% mm. better every mm. time we actually took the, either the court or dove into the swimming pool or whatever the sport might be. And, and the illusion that we were that much greater was because that's what we had a skill set at doing. Mm. Not having an excuse that on that particular day, if we woke up, we didn't feel that good. We made it a point to have to feel that good, and we figured out how to get there to the finish line.
0: I believe that your gifts, and I'm a sculptor. so Michelangelo is he because I can see his chisel marks in his unfinished works, it's as though he taps me on the shoulder and says, Robbie, move the chisel vertical, not horizontal to make this cheekbone. Uh, in this marble. It's just, a, it's an awesome thing. And I just love that you talk about you were bestowed natural, incredible gifts physically. But I got to tell you, Mark Spitz, the thing that fascinates me the most about you for that 2%, 3% you're talking about is your gifts in psychological warfare. And I what I mean by that is I'm on this Fakakta swimming team in New York, the Farakway High School swimming team, idolizing you with my Speedo Mark Spitz shorts. But all the while, what I'm appreciating is my teammates shaving themselves, doing with oils, all kinds of crazy things to be faster. Can you imagine being any of those other swimmers from Russia or wherever they were that were going up against you, and you have a mustache, you have this beautiful black hair because you like the way it looked. But psychologically, can you imagine what that must have done to your competitors going, I'm so good. I'm going to actually have extra resistance in the water by having my hair and my mustache. It must have been an unbelievable psychological power that you did unknowingly with this incredible benefit.
2: <laughs> you know... The story about the mustache is funny. um you have to go back to oh, nineteen seventy two and my coach always wanted all of his athletes at college to look like the clean cut right you know collegiate all american boy. And he said, no, you can't have facial hair. Of course, there was never thought of that anybody would have a goatee or a mustache. But if you think about the musical groups, they all had long hair. The Rolling Stones, the Beatles, everybody. Um, And I just was out of spite. When I finished my senior year in 1972, I go, well, I don't have to listen to him anymore when I'm graduating. I'm going to grow this mustache, and it took forever to come in. So I was so proud of this thing after cultivating the thing literally for about three or four months. We went to the Olympic trials in Chicago, and everybody was talking about my mustache. And I realized that if they're talking about my mustache, they're not thinking about how to beat me. So I figured, you know, I might as well keep this thing and see how it goes. And I broke three world records and tied one of my world records in the four individual events that I was going to compete in in Mm -hmm. munich about a month later and i said well it worked for me at the olympic trials i'll keep it but on the Mm -hmm. day before swimming started in munich we had already run through our allocated time at swimming at the venue Mm -hmm. uh they had uh, there's so many different countries that we didn't have enough time to actually practice in the actual real pool that we swam in so there were a lot of other pools in the city that we could practice in, but I wanted to go there at exactly the evening hours, which our practice times were always in the daytime, Mm -hmm. to see what the ambient light was like, and there was a Russian team there that was the last group that would be using the pool. Mm -hmm. So I knew a couple of the coaches, and I walked from the village about 15 minutes over to the pool, and I said, can I swim for about 10 minutes? And they said, sure, if you can wait a few minutes, I'm gonna clear out lane number one for you. And I said, okay, fine, and I was swimming in lane number one, and I noticed that half the coaching staff had actually left. And they were somewhere, but I couldn't figure it out. Um, and all of a sudden, I was looking at these flash bulbs. Um, the, at the end of the pool, there were two big underwater windows so that the television cameras could get the turns. And I realized that half their coaching staff were down there taking pictures of me. So I did this stupid stroke. I mean, just crazy stroke when I got in the view of the windows, figuring I'll throw them off at the scent, you know, of how I swim. So as I finished after this 15-minute session, I came back up. The true story. And they said you know, my colleagues have never seen you swim personally, but we noticed underwater you have a very interesting stroke. You always <laughs> swim like that. And I, I said, yes, I do. And, of course, he translated that very that very worst in, in Russian to them. And they said, well, we have another question. You've got this mustache. Doesn't it slow you down? I go, and I, by the way, I was going back from that particular training session <laughs> to go shave this mustache off of the ultimate psych for myself. Right. And they And I said, no, it doesn't slow me down. I said, how could that possibly be? I said, well, you see, this mustache, it deflects the water away from my mouth. It allows my head to get much lower and my behind to come up, and I'm more streamlined. As a matter of fact, it really worked four weeks earlier at the Olympic trials where I broke three world records, and that's the reason why I'm going to keep this mustache. And I left that training session saying to myself, you are an idiot if you want to go and shave this thing off. I mean, this is working perfectly. I didn't even realize it that you were getting everybody so far off track. (laughs) Well, guess what? Obviously, I went and swam with the Olympic Games with this mustache, and the following year, every Russian male swimmer had a mustache. Ah! (laughs) That is... Guess what? The guy that got second to me... Excuse me, the guy that got third... Uh, the bronze medal in the 100-meter yeah. freestyle was Vladimir Bure. Mm-hmm. And his son, because he wasn't, didn't have a son and wasn't married at that time, he gets married, has a son named Pavel Bure, which is one of the greatest hockey players just behind Wayne Gretzky. So you can imagine. <laughs> eventually, one day um, at the at the Kings uh, uh, hockey game, mm-hmm. and they were playing uh, Canucks or whatever where he was on it. I'd never met him before. And there was a special arrangement that I could go back after the game and meet him. And Pavel Bure came up to me and he says, I hate you. He says, I know who you are and I hate you. I said, why is that? He says, because you're the reason that I'm a great hockey player because my father wanted me to go in the swimming pool. And I decided to take it so that it was frozen water rather than liquid water. And I, go, I said to him, I said, say hello to Vladimir for me, which is his father's name. And And, and so, you see? Things happen. I got a lot of stories like that. I, I know.
0: I could talk to you for hours, and I really would love to. I got. I probably have time for one more question, even though I. I would love. This is like a million things I wrote down here, and I just didn't even get to any of them. The focus, obviously, of the seven gold medals in '72 and the seven world records in in that moment, which was just unbelievable. Tell me, in 1968 in Mexico City. When you had the bronze medal and even finished last in one of the races, here again, this is Michael Jordan getting cut by his high school basketball team. You almost need a chip on your shoulder. Was that a chip on your shoulder?
2: Of course. Uh, In 1968, I was 18 years old. Nobody had actually gone to the Olympics and tried to compete in as many events as I had. Mm -hmm. I had not the experience of trying to do that Mm -hmm. um, all in the same competition. It's one thing to have a world record and do it at one particular meet and do a different event in another. uh, But to package them all and try to do them under the same time frame Mm -hmm. was a little difficult. So in two of the events that I held the world record in, uh, I got second place in one of them. As a matter of fact, I only lost this event once, and what happened to be at the Olympic Games, a big event, obviously, was the 100-meter butterfly, and it put that person, his name was Doug Russell, on the Olympic uh, medley relay team, and I failed to get a gold medal there because he was faster, and therefore he had the privilege of swimming the butterfly leg in the medley relay. And uh, I was the world record holder in the 200-meter butterfly qualified first. I think if I had gone a second slower in the finals, I would have won, but I went even better than that. I went about six seconds slower, and I got dead last eighth. Mm -hmm. And wouldn't you know it that it was the inspiration of why I would continue swimming for another four years and do what I did in Munich Mm -hmm. and winning the seven gold medals. And the very first race of those Olympic Games was the 200-meter butterfly, the event that I got dead last in in the finals. I said boy I better get off to a good start. It, ironically of the four individual events was the event that I hated the most because it was the most difficult to get through and it mm. wasn't an easy event. Mm. But it was also an event that I had almost a 3 second lead over the field so I didn't really have to be as sharp for the first event mm. but I had to get through that event obviously mm. and I did. Mark and so that's what that's what that's what I took away from Mexico City that you know it's not it's not that you're going to fall down it's how well you get up.
0: All the red lights are going off because I'm going too long, but I could care less. So I'll have to figure out how to do the rest of it. I, I just have a last question for you. You're, you're my hero. You are. And you're the hero of so many people quietly behind me. Who do you, other than your mom and your dad, tell me, is there someone that was a hero to you? Who is Mark Spitz's mentor, hero, someone that he admired? In any field, and I, that includes art, sports, education, is this someone's teachings that really touch you?
2: I think that I, I don't think as a kid I had too many heroes, but in my focus of swimming when I realized that I had a talent. I was swimming next to somebody that really could have been considered a hero, even though I would have never admitted it at the time, which is this guy, and I mentioned in this in the show already. His name was Don Scholander. Mm-hmm. He was the pinnacle of our sport, winning four gold medals like Jesse Owens, you know, and mm-hmm. in the Olympic Games in Berlin for track and field in the 30s. I mean, he was like the gold standard. He was the holy grail of swimming. Um, and I learned a lot from him by observing. Um, was he a nice guy? Then, Did course, you talk I, to him? I surpassed him.
0: Yeah, well, that's the thing. You now, you're you're on an island, Mark Spitz, literally, not Hawaii. You're on the Mark Spitz Island when you surpass your hero. But I think that's really what it's all about. I can't ask Michelangelo who his hero is. Maybe it was Phidias, the sculptor for the Greeks. But in the end, it's a lonely place sometimes to be your own hero, but
2: in order to become I, I think I think the bottom line is there's a commonality of somebody that that uh, is yeah. consistently always up there in the front um, right. and you consider or the public considers them as being great and that mm-hmm. was is that our legacy or the things that we had done in our athletic career uh, become a matter of measure mm-hmm. which others may judge themselves by. And, and that is the greatest legacy that we can leave on our sport, that somebody was inspired by something that we may have accomplished, yeah, yeah. and they then set themselves up to want to achieve those similar goals. Um, and, and that's the impact that we can have on what we have meant to the sport. And and for that, I take solace and, and comfort to know that somebody like a Michael Phelps, 36 years later, broke my record, and right. that I was alive to even witness it. Right. It's just a testament that I could understand how good I was when somebody else broke my record.
0: Well, I want you to know something outside of swimming. I got motivated to go to Columbia to train at the hospital for special surgery to be the best orthopedic surgeon. And those patients yesterday in surgery, they benefit from the skill set that I got. But even though you're a swimmer and I'm an orthopedic surgeon... You also inspired me to be the best at what I could be as an orthopedic surgeon, even though it's not swimming. And that, to me, is the, your ultimate legacy. And I can't thank you enough. And thank you for getting up early. I mean, I don't know what to do. I better not check my blood pressure because I, I'm verklempt right now talking to you. <laughs> you're, you're just the greatest, Mark Spitz. And thank you so much for making the time. And now everyone can appreciate how beautiful the journey has been for you and how you did it from within. And you do it with class and with professionalism. You represent all of us the greatest. So thank you once again, Mark.
2: Well, thank you for having me on there. And if, the takeaway from this interview is, is it's never too late to be the person you thought you could be, and it starts right from this yeah, moment on.
0: Right, right. Yeah, we'll, we'll remember that. I can't wait to meet you in person one day. Have a great Saturday with your family. Talk soon. Thank you. Okay, that's the great Mark Spitz. Okay, now, Steve Pellett, we need a commercial, because I have to calm down, because that was unbelievable. Weekend Warriors, I hope you enjoyed it. The number's 877-710-ESPN. You're now listening to Dr. Clapper, and probably the happiest he's ever been in ten and a half years on this station. Wow. Coming up next, I'll take your calls. 877-710-ESPN, and i got to tell you where... Those cherry peppers come from. Holy emoji, clapman. Weekend warriors on Facebook. Holy slip disc. That's right, Robin. Hear listeners talk about their aches and pains. Holy hamstrings. Along with Doc's clapper
1: vision. Breathe deeply.
0: And advice to callers.
1: On your toes, Robin.
0: So like follow and enjoy a wise decision the weekend wear facebook page frankly i can think of nothing more stimulating
2: hi friends it's vin scully it's time for dr clapper in sports there's winning and
0: losing and getting injured Welcome back, weekend Warriors. What a treat. Before the Laker game starts, sitting in the studio with me is the great Michael Thompson. Without a doubt, my favorite basketball player. Sure, right. Because we're joined at the hip. Yeah,
1: yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> but I think you had other favorites like Will Chamberlain. There's yeah. A that's picture true. You and Will up in your office.
0: That's right. Yes. It's awesome to, to learn about the game from professional athletes that. There's a level of it that you don't really appreciate as a fan that you can only learn. It's it's hilarious. I If I ask you, Michael, what you ate for breakfast yesterday, you, you might have trouble telling me. Mm-hmm. But if I ask you about 25 years ago, third quarter, three seconds to go, you're going to remember exactly yeah. what everybody wore, what they were playing, what they did. And it's amazing the memory that a professional... Yeah, athlete has. That's
1: true, but you as, as great as it is to remember all the victories, you remember the losses more Yes, because they hurt more than it feels good to win. And I, Mike Singletary said it best. I mean, this is the best quote I've ever heard about uh, an athlete and what the game meant to him and uh, what it felt the play. And he said, they asked him what was the thing he was most grateful for, and Singletary Won a Super Bowl, of course, played with those great Chicago, that great Chicago Bear team that some people think was the greatest team of all time, if not the greatest defense of all time. And he simply said, and it's true, and it made me think about it too. And I always kind of felt this way, but I didn't say it as as, as um, eloquently. Pr- eloquently as he said. And I said, Mike, what's the best thing about playing professional sport, about being an athlete? He said, you know what? The opportunity to play. That means God has blessed you with a body healthy enough to play, You've been blessed with skills healthy enough to play, and that's in any sport. You don't have to be a pro athlete; you can be a high school player, boy or girl. But yet, you have a body that's healthy enough to go out there and compete, because there are so many people in this world who have, as you, as you know, have uh, have uh, illnesses that can't, uh, don't have healthy bodies, and we take for granted sometimes when we're healthy. Right. And um, I remember after you gave me my hip replacement, and for a few weeks, you know, it takes time to recover. Yep. Just to be able to get out of bed on your own, yeah. just to be able to sit on the toilet without any right. difficulties, just to be able to go up and down stairs. I couldn't go upstairs in my house for a month because I wasn't allowed to. Just the fact to be able to climb stairs freely, you just take things, the, the ability to move, yes. we take it for granted. And we just it, it reminds you to be so thankful that you have a healthy body that you could just do natural, normal things. Well,
0: this brings me to the soundbite I'd like you to listen to, and again, You're allowed to be politically correct. And I'm not interested in throwing anybody under the bus. But I heard this on the morning show with Keyshawn Johnson, Mike Greenberg going on a rant. Because clearly, there's a Laker game today. There's two more games to go. But you do have to think about the standing for the playoffs. It's all about winning a ring. So listen to this Mike Greenberg rant uh, about LeBron James. Nothing is more important than playing a game. You have a game. Don't tell me to care about your games if you're telling me you don't. Don't tell me I should get excited about these games if you're telling me you don't. You're not excited. It's more important to raise the banner. Anyone can raise the banner. We came to watch a game. We came to watch you play. You're the best player. Now, again, I don't like doing this when it comes to LeBron because LeBron traditionally has not load managed. But at the end of the day, it is just a perfect microcosm of what has gone wrong here. The players have decided the regular season doesn't matter. To me, it's not fair to... I appreciate being able to ask the tough questions. I mean, I guess you could ask LeBron, is this really about pain and and you just don't feel 100%? Or is it the fact that it's better for us to not play the Clippers right away? You know what I mean? It's...
1: I agree with him, but then I don't agree with him. No, I agree with him, not on LeBron's case, because LeBron is coming off an injury. And Correct. maybe he's not 100%. So we got to trust him because LeBron's a gamer. Right. He, he's a competitor. He does play. He doesn't miss games. Right. And if he says he's not ready, you got to take him at his word. Correct. I have no problem with that. He's and, earned that. Yeah. And, but I get upset when guys are perfectly healthy and they go, ah, I'll take the night off. When you're a star. If you're a role player, I don't care. But when you are the face of a franchise, or the all-star on that team, the legend on that team, you need to play. Kobe Bryant had that attitude. Michael Jordan had that because they understood they had a responsibility. People are paying. Yeah, I know it says Chicago Bulls on the jersey. I know it says New York Knicks. But when I go to a game, I'm going to watch Patrick Ewing. I'm going to see Michael Jordan. I'm going to see Kobe Bryant. Yeah, I know the other guys on the team, too, and I want to see them. But the main reason why I'm taking my kids to that game is spending 1000 bucks or $500 or 300 bucks or whatever, is I want to see that star play. That's the way I feel about baseball, too, when the stars decide, oh, I'll take the day off. I don't feel like playing today. I just need the rest. No, you got to understand, superstar, people are paying to come see you, and this may be their only time to be able to see you because this is all I can afford. I remember one time I was going to Dodger Stadium because my son wanted to see Ken Griffey play. That's he uh Trace. He was about 13, 14, and he wanted to see Ken Griffey. That's the reason why I went to the game. I drove all the way up there to go take him to see Ken Griffey play. Not the Cincinnati Reds. He wanted to see Ken Griffey. And sure enough, we were there early and we were waiting, 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 and we never saw Ken Griffey. Didn't oh. come no, he didn't come off a pregame, didn't come off for nothing. And I'm sitting there going, I cannot believe we waited. we waited all this time to come up here to see Ken Griffey play. This is my son's idol, and he's not going to play today. This is his only chance. He's going to see him, you know, for this season anyway. But sure enough, as soon as the – when the uh, batting lineups came out, Ken Griffey's name was in the lineup. I went, Phew, thank God. Can you imagine (laughs) if he didn't play? That's that's (laughs) how you have to think as a star. People are coming to see you. Now, LeBron's case, he's a bit hurt, so he needs to wait until he's 100%. So Mike Greenberg's wrong this time about LeBron. But LeBron, when he's healthy, doesn't really take – only if he's beat up or sore, he needs to take a day off. Now, some guys are rare. Kobe never took a night off, as we know, right. unless he tore something or right. or, or broke something. Right. He didn't care how sore and tired he was, he was playing. Michael right. Jordan had the same – Magic Johnson had the same attitude, too. Some guys are like that. Some guys prefer, uh, I think I'll just – 82-game schedule, I'll play in 70 of them. That's wrong if you're healthy.
0: So you sat down in the studio with me, and I'm so delighted to to have you here in front of me. And the first thing you said is how the wins are great for a professional athlete, but it's the losses that stick with you. And as a surgeon, yes, 16,000 people running around great. I remember the inside of every single one of them because trust me, the artery, the nerve is never exactly where it's supposed to be, and I remember those moments. So I want to ask you, That drive that we see in Michael Jordan, that we see in Kobe, in Michael Jordan and in his Hall of Fame speech, when he actually has the chutzpah, the Yiddish term, to bring his high school coach, who cut him from the high school team, to tell him, I bet you're wondering why you're here here today. In the case of Kobe Bryant, we never hear much about his dad jelly bean brian we know this that he grew up in italy because obviously his dad was not playing in the nba do you think that that is the being cut from the high school team part of kobe Bryant? brian that fired him up that how privileged it is to be in the nba do you think that comes from watching his father play in europe
1: Oh, yeah, no no doubt about it. He grew up around the game. He developed a passion for the game quickly. That happens in a lot of these young players' games, uh, players' athletes, whether it's in baseball, football, whatever sport they are, following their father's footsteps. They grew up in the game, and they learned about it at an early age, and obviously were introduced to it and they got a passion for it. Now, sometimes that doesn't work. Look at Michael Jordan's kids. They tried, but they weren't, both of them, Jeffrey Jordan and the other one, I forget his name, they both played high school basketball and played uh, sparely a little bit in college. But, you know, and they, they liked the game, but they didn't have to, the, the talent or the drive to stick with it to try to make it to the NBA and follow in following their father's footsteps. But it is an advantage when you have a parent I guess in any business, whether even if parents' are a doctor in the medical field, you say, "I want to be like Dad or mom," right. And that's sometimes that you see children following their parents in the medical field, so that's, that's all part of the influence of being a, a child of an athlete.
0: Do you think then the road for Clay Thompson, your son, was that much more difficult because he was being compared to you? What, what drove Clay to such heights?:
1: I think it's easier. It could be a little bit hard, too, because they compare the kids to their fathers, especially if their fathers are legends. Right. right? You know, Jeffrey Jordan was compared to Michael. Uh, I'm sure Bronny James are gonna be, is going to be compared to his dad, even though Bronny's a good player in his own right. So in that way, it could be difficult being mm-hmm. compared to your father. But Clay has exceeded my career a million-fold, infinity-fold, so he doesn't have to worry about being compared to me. I need to be compared to him. <laughs> but, uh, it, but then again, it makes it easier for kids, boys or girls, to – Maybe get to a certain level because they are around their parents who can show them the right way, and also other legends. Right. They don't have Clay didn't have to listen to me. He could go talk get advice from Kobe, which he did. He could get advice from Clyde Drexler, which he did. He got advice from Rasheed Wallace, who's a was was a great player, which he did. He was around those kind of guys, so he didn't always have to hear it from me saying do this, do that because he had legends telling mm-hmm. him do this, do that, and so he took, so he listened to he probably listened to them more than me.
0: How appreciative I can only imagine you must be, of the moments that Clay got to spend with Kobe.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. So I was so grateful. Kobe was like that with all the young players, not just Clay, because he was my son. He was like that with was, with obscure or anonymous players, taking time to speak to them, to advise them about the game, to give them advi- to give them advice and tips. But he definitely did that for Clay. Treated him uh, with a lot of respect when Clay was a little high schooler trying to find his way. Clay was he was Clay's idol. So for Clay to be around him, be able to work out with him over at uh, UC Irvine, that's where Kobe used to go work out, and sometimes Clay would be in the gym and Kobe would be in there with him. One time he came me, hey, Dad, hey, Dad, guess what, <laughs> guess what, guess what? I said, what? <laughs> Man, me and Kobe worked out today. <laughs> I said, you actually saw Kobe and you guys see he worked out with? Him? Yes. And we probably, He was so excited to tell me that. I was like, I think he got more enjoyment out of that than winning a championship. Wow. Mm-hmm. One day I had the, the real
0: privilege of interviewing Gary Vitti, who I know very well. Oh, yeah. As a guest on this show. and One I, time
1: I asked Gary Vitti. I yep. said, Vitti, because he's been around the Lakers for 30 years. That's right. From so Magic and Kareem, he's been around all the legends. Right. A.C. Green, right. who never missed a game. <laughs> Play that, through all thanks of injuries, to right? Gary Vitti. And I said, Vitti, I said, Gary, who's the toughest Laker you've ever been around? You know, like mental toughness, physical toughness. And without hesitation, he said, I thought he would say Magic. I thought he would say Kareem. Without hesitation, he said Kobe.
0: Wow. I asked him. You've been around the game forever. You're a legend, Gary Vitti. What's the one thing that you, as if you can put it into one thing, what's the one thing that you can say about professional athletes that's impressed you the most? And he said, he, th- he stopped. You know, he was like a meteorologist. He was going to be, he wasn't going to even be a trainer. So he has depth is, is why I'm mentioning that. He has depth, and the answer was beautiful he said the most overrated thing in professional sports is talent. Talent. He said I've I've met athletes that could jump out of the gym. Mm-hmm. They go nowhere. The most important thing that I see is focus.
1: Yeah. Mental toughness.
0: Where does that come from? And that that is actually the intangible. So you wonder getting is it a blessing to be cut? by your high school basketball team, where most people say, that's it, I'm never going to play basketball, I'm mad at the coach. No, we all get thrown off the horse. It's it's the successful people that learn how to get back up. So was it Kobe watching his dad have to play in Italy and not in the NBA that made him appreciate the journey that much more?
1: Yeah, you know one of the reasons why I wanted Clay to be a Lakers so bad because Clay grew up um – pulling for the Lakers, and, of course, Kobe was his guy, and I wanted him to play for the Lakers. I wanted Gary Vitti to be the first trainer in history to be the trainer of mother, father, and son. He was my wife's trainer at the University of Portland. Wow. How about that? Before before he took the Laker job. I did not know that. Isn't that weird? (laughs) Because she she played volleyball in Portland, and he was the trainer of the volleyball team. (laughs) Not weird. <laughs> so I was hoping Clay could be a Laker, so he could have like the father, son, father, mother, and son. be train her up. That would have been kind of cool. Kind of like a nice tri- trilogy. Well, they just announced
0: yesterday. I saw on Twitter that LeBron James has renewed, extended his contract for another two years. With who? With the Lakers. Really? Yes. When did that happen? Yesterday. I saw it on Twitter. How come
1: I didn't At- see it on hoops, hyping all that stuff? I'm uh, always on these uh, basketball updates. I think sites.
0: it was a Dave McMenamin. I, I, maybe I'm giving the wrong person credit, but I, I love Dave wow. McMenamin, and I think he he's the one who announced it. And you know what I immediately thought of in the line of thinking that you're mentioning? Oh, my God. That means Bronny James uh-huh. can play in the same... Talk, you talk about Gary Vitti taking care of the mother, the right. father, the son... We may be seeing the first time in NBA history where a father and a son are in the same backcourt. Well, that oh, yeah. is –
1: LeBron said that's one of his goals. What, that would be probably his greatest accomplishment. He said that to, to play on a team with his son. Now, how, for that to work, if Le, this will take LeBron up to what, age 38 or 9? Maybe 30. LeBron's 36 now, right? He's going to be 37 next year, so up to 39. So that means for, Bronny, for that to work, for his goal to be accomplished, because if – I guess Bronny's good enough to play in the NBA. People are projecting him out to be an NBA draft pick. He's that good. Hmm. That means they'll have to work out some kind of deal with the rest of the league. They don't draft this kid. He's got to come play with his dad, I guess, because some other team might draft him. Wow. And if LeBron's under contract with the Lakers, he, you know, then it won't be able to work. But I don't know. Maybe LeBron's going to play till he's 40 or 41 like Tom Brady. <laughs>
0: Listen. If anybody can do it, it's LeBron James. Yeah, maybe you're right with you that know? body
1: of his, the way he takes care of himself.
0: And uh, I'm not going to call it load management because when it's LeBron, I disagree with Greenberg. It's you got to give him; he deserves our respect of not being that. Guy. And when
1: you're coming off of an injury, yes, you can't really question it. Yeah, I exactly. only question it when I know a guy's fully healthy, he's not hurt, and he's taking a night off. But if a guy's coming off an injury, you got to wait till he says he's ready. Do you remember Barbara Walters? <laughs> Well, how young do you think I am? Of course. (laughs) I know exactly how old you are. Barbara Walters Hugh Downs on 2020 every Thursday night. Of course. All right.
0: I can't wait to talk to you about that. All right. We're going to take a break. We'll pay some bills. We're talking to the great Michael Thompson, the legend. And again, I know a lot about the hip, but not the hop. You're listening to the one and only Weekend Warriors show here on 710 ESPN. Hey, it's Mace. You know there is no better way to start your Saturday than with Dr. Clapper and the Weekend Warrior Show, 7 to 9 a.m. Saturday mornings.
1: What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. With tinted windows. Can you imagine? Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper.
0: While I'm in Italy.
1: Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles neighborhood. I don't
0: even care. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. Last segment because there's a Laker game coming, and that's why we're blessed to have the great Michael Thompson in the studio with me learning about life. Yeah. And I'm trying to – so, Michael Thompson, in your beautiful career, which was gigantic well, yeah, on blessed, every level. I had a blessed career, man. I think you, about it every day. And a blessed childhood and blessed yep. parents and, yep. and, and, and upbringing, and yeah. you're a blessed father to all, but there's one thing you did not train for that you've had to acquire, and I'm here to say not just you're sitting in front of me, I, I, I enjoy your commentary so much. Why? You know why? Because it's not trained. Mm-hmm. You did not go to school to be a broadcaster, correct? Out of have Right. They would have told you, you need to be in this box. Yep. Thank God they didn't get to pollute your style, your technique. Same thing for me. I'm an orthopedic surgeon. I'm not supposed to be on the radio. I have no idea what I'm doing. And yet, you listen to this show, you're going to hear me compare Dick Butkus to Michelangelo because they both hit things with yeah, precision. That's right. You know what I yeah. mean? Because the the perspective that I have is so different. So I've been highlighting who inspired me and taught me without going to school how to interview people. So I want to play a soundbite for you of Vince Scully interviewing Sandy Koufax, I just, you know, Michelangelo's dead 500 years. I can't talk to him, but I got you right in front of me, so I can't wait. I had a professor, Dr. Ranawat, teach me the eyes don't see what the mind doesn't know. I want to take advantage of your ears, that your ears teach me what my mind doesn't know. So listen to Sandy Koufax being interviewed by Vince Scully.
2: Most veteran newspaper men around the ballpark were watching to see when you and Drysdale arrived which of the two had already shaved because it's Uh traditional that the pitcher with the beard is going to pitch but you and Drysdale both came in unshaven. When did you find out you were going to pitch today? I found out when we got here that's why neither of us were shaved. (laughs) Well you didn't know until you got here. No.
1: Now tell me when you found out
2: was it in front of the entire club did the manager go over or what? Yeah Walt had a meeting and uh He said that he thought he'd like to start the left-hander, and uh, he had a reason for it. He said, if I have to make a switch, I'd rather go left-right-left, talking about Paranowski as his last man if he had to make two moves, then start the right-hander and go left-left. You don't uh, don't change their lineup Mm. any when you do that.
0: This is Vince Scully observing. You guys were Mm clean-shaven. When did you find out? And then the follow-up question. Did the manager take you off to the side? This personal decision of who's going to pitch tonight, you or Drysdale? Or did he do it in front of the whole team? It. This is a Michael Thompson kind of question. Yeah,
1: notice little little quirky things. Let me ask you a question since we only got a few minutes. Jeannie Buss made her all-time Lakers five, favorite five of all time. John Ireland's done his. He included Chick Hearn on his top five Lakers of all time. Let's say my top 5 lakers of all time regardless of playing or front office or whatever position right for the lakers my top 5 lakers of all time for as far as influence and impact on this franchise kobe magic kareem those are the three players right yep and then my other two of course are the two jerrys bus and west cuz those two built the dynasty who's your top, who's your most f- five influential lakers of all time court player or what broadcaster front office whatever
0: Because I'm a a lover of the history and the importance of, as a sculptor, I start with a block, and you have to see the figure that's trapped in there. There's no doubt it's Elgin Baylor.
2: Elgin Baylor. You
0: have to start, and you have to watch that black and white film because it wasn't even in color. Mm -hmm. Of he was a man amongst boys, basically. He. Where did he that's get one? The, Who's the other four? He, where did he get this creativity? So that's kind of where my mindset okay. is is who brought something beyond basketball? Elgin Baylor brought the art the artistry to the game and was the first one. To me, the next one that I would have to say is Shaquille O'Neal. Mm-hmm. Because Shaquille O'Neal taught us that it's joyful. You yeah. know? The oh big yeah. he, and he learned this from Daryl magic- Dawkins. Yeah. From Daryl Dawkins. Magic Johnson, the creativity combined with skill set to be able to play all five positions has to be next. So it's Elgin? it's Elgin Baylor, it's Magic Johnson, it's Shaquille yeah. O'Neal.
1: And who's the last two? Kobe Bryant is
0: got to be there. Yeah. And probably Ooh, the last...
1: Whoa, this, now, who we, who's going to be <laughs> your fifth? Well, you got a lot to choose from here. To me,
0: I don't think, as a man like you, Michael Thompson, who has taken skill set from playing... To now going to a whole nother field like me, an orthopedic surgeon on the radio, it's a whole nother career, a whole nother field. Doing it that well, there's no one better than Jerry Buss. Jerry Buss. That's my top
1: five. That's your top five. Yeah, a lot of everybody's top five would be similar or very right, different. Right, yeah, So It's when, hard to argue about everybody's top five because they're all
0: deserving. Whenever you meet a total stranger from now on, this is a clapper vision thing. You don't know them from a hole in the wall. You want to get up to speed of who this person is, I always ask them one question. Not what's your favorite, but what are your top five movies of all time? By the time you get, they get to their third movie, you know everything about this person.
1: Really? That's a good point. (laughs) So what's your top five?
0: Uh, I love this Steve McQueen movie. Which one? Which is the greatest movie about revenge. Called Nevada Smith. Have you ever seen that movie? No, I haven't seen. Oh, that you got to see that movie. Best ending in any movie I've ever seen. Body Heat. Remember Body Heat?
1: Yeah, with uh, what's the name? Uh, and the ending nice. of
0: that movie will blow your Kathleen mind. Turner, yeah. uh, Kathleen Turner. Yeah, Kathleen Turner. Certainly, The Graduate was great for me, but there's a foreign film that that really did it for me. Being a poor kid from New York who had all these dreams to become an orthopedic surgeon. It's a, it's a movie called Swept Away by Lena Vertmuller. It's uh, it's an Italian movie with English subtitles. It is like the greatest movie. So The Graduate, Swept Away, Nevada Smith, uh, Body Heat, and I'm a Surfer. So the greatest top five movie for me is Endless Summer.
1: Man, you're, you're too deep. My top five movies of all time are Rocky, <laughs> one, two, three, four, and five. No I, no, I don't know. I've never. Nobody's ever asked me that question before. <laughs> And uh, I don't know. I'd have to have a tough time coming up with my top five. Yeah,
0: something to think about. And by the
1: way, when are you going to go to Portugal and ride the ride the uh, you, you know those waves in Portugal? Yes, the hundred foot waves. Yes, when are you going to ride one of those yeah. suckers?
0: Uh, yeah, I will ride it in my mind's eye. <laughs> Thank you very much. That's what I, that's
1: the surfing story I want to hear, Doc. <laughs> or go over <laughs> to the pipeline off of Oahu. When are you going to ride those I've 30, forty that. footers? i done
0: I actually went no. once, so I can sit here and say that I did that. What's the biggest wave you ever rode? Three times over my head.
1: So that's 18 feet?
0: Uh, well, probably 15 feet.
1: What's that like? We're having that, all that water behind you. You, Your heart literally jumps out of your chest. Wow. Yeah, You guys are crazy. You don't <laughs> see no brothers out there. <laughs> Ain't no black people doing there that. There are black they people. There are? Yes, and in the Bahamas. Right, yes. 20-footers? Yes, they no. are. Thank God. We don't get 20-footers in the Bahamas. The biggest of waves we get in is like feet Yes, yeah, you get hurricanes. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Nobody out there riding those things. <laughs> the
0: great Michael Thompson, thanks so much for being with me this morning, Michael. It's such a pleasure. Warriors, Next week. I leave you with Volari, by the way, the greatest song. Next week, we're going to talk about pressure points. You'll hear it in the promo. Until then, I'll see you on the radio.